chain of events, cause and effect. We analyze what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium supporters have access to high-quality versions of episodes as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Before we begin this episode, to celebrate the upcoming 50th episode of Causality, we will be making an official Causality shirt available for a limited time with special offers for show supporters. Visit engineer.network slash celebrate for details in coming weeks. Carmel Fireworks Explosion At approximately 8.45am local time, on Wednesday the 6th of March 2002, a series of explosions occurred in the Perth Hills area in the suburb of Carmel in Western Australia. The explosions came from a fireworks storage facility operated by Cardile Fireworks Proprietary Limited. Carmel is located approximately 25 kilometres, that's 15 and a half miles, east-southeast from the CBD of Perth, the capital city of Western Australia and home to 1.4 million people at that time. Mr Jim Cardile is one of five generations of Cardiles to own and operate Cardile Fireworks that began in 1890 in Italy. And then, upon emigrating to Australia in 1909, Mr Gattano Cardile continued the business here in Australia. The initial application for the storage of fireworks at Lot 6 Turner Road in Carmel was made on the 11th of April 1985, with a licence formally issued on the 15th of April 1986 following a site suitability inspection. The first fireworks were stored in Carmel later that year. In the years between the first licence being issued in 2002, multiple extensions and additional licences were sought. In October 1990, the original licence was extended from 600 kilograms, or 1,300 pounds to 1,500 kilograms or 3,300 pounds. In May of 1992, an additional 300 kilograms or 660 pounds, uh, that license was also issued. In April 2001, two additional 5,000 kilogram or 11,000 pound licenses were issued. Therefore, at 2002, the total licensed storage capacity was 11,000 800 kilograms, that's 11.8 tonnes, of fireworks distributed across four magazines. Before we go further, we need to understand a little bit about magazines and fireworks. A magazine is a term used to describe a longer-term storage location for explosive materials to be held in, such as buildings, storehouses, or structures. However, it does not include containers for transporting or short-term so-called day boxes. There were four magazines, numbered M1 through M4, in use at the facility at the time of the incident. Magazine nominal storage capacity is based upon the internal floor area within the magazine with one tonne storable for every two square metres. Let's quickly run through some definitions of the fireworks and firework components involved in this incident for context. A ground pack is a group of tubes fastened together such that each tube is pointing parallel to each other in a grid or an array. Each tube in the pack contains one or more pyrotechnic units, or elements, or both. And all of the tubes are then fused together and will fire in a set sequence by a single ignition. Aerial shells are fireworks that are either cylindrical or spherical that are launched high into the air from a cylindrical tube, otherwise known as a mortar. 
that is generally secured into the ground or a heavy rack, a metal bin, or a drum. Shells are defined by their diameter, which can range from as small as 75 millimeters or 3 inches up to 600 millimeters or 24 inches. A mine is a ground firework that can propel small reports, serpents, or stars. Burning stars is the name given to the longest glowing type of star. Stars come in a huge variety of colors and can be very fast burning to quite slow burning. Specific types have many different names, including firefly, crackling, strobe, silver glitter, gold glitter, color changing, and so on. Stars can also produce different levels of light, sparks, sound, and smoke as well. Roman candles are also called exhibition candles or just candles. They consist of a cardboard tube loaded with alternating layers of propellant and pyrotechnic units, such that fireworks are propelled into the air in a linear sequence from the same tube. Reports, and no, not like a written report that you might hand in to someone for them to read, although it's spelt the same way. Reports are also referred to as a salute, and it refers to any pyrotechnic device whose main effect is a loud boom or a cracking sound. Daytime smoke is coloured smoke trails that are highly visible during the daytime and regularly used for daylight displays. A quick match is a fast-burning pyrotechnic fuse consisting of one or more strands of string each strand is covered with gunpowder, and then all strands are encased in a paper sleeve. Lances are small cardboard or paper tubes containing smoke-producing or light-producing pyrotechnics. Port fires are tubes of cardboard or paper containing slow-burning pyrotechnics, and they are normally used to set off fireworks at outdoor displays. Fountains are also called gerbs. However, Technically, fountains are fixed to the ground rather than to a display or an object. They are a static firework that creates a vertical column of sparks that resembles a water fountain-like shape. An electric fuse head is an igniter that comprises of two thicker wires that are joined by a very thin filament-like wire that is physically proximate to the main fuse that is temperature-sensitive. When a voltage is applied between the wires, the thin wire melts, creating a brief high temperature igniting the main fuse which then ignites the firework. And finally, confetti bombs. A very small explosive packed within a cardboard tube that is packed with smaller colored pieces of tissue paper such that upon detonation, the rapidly expanding warm air inside the tube expels the tissue paper into the air. There, I just explained confetti. Are we happy now? So with all that background, what exactly was stored at Cardile Fireworks? Unfortunately, a detailed manifest of the contents of each magazine was not kept by Cardale Fireworks. Therefore, the following are estimates based on eyewitness accounts leading up to and on the morning of the incident. Magazine 1 contained ground-level fireworks consisting predominantly of ground packs for a total of 700 kilograms NEQ. Magazine 2 contained approximately 230 cartons of ground packs for a total of 725 kilograms NEQ. Magazine 3 contained aerial shells of various diameters and 75mm salutes, also known as reports, with an initial estimate of 941 kilograms NEQ, although this was disputed during the investigation as being less than 300 kilograms NEQ. Magazine 4 contained larger aerial shells from between 75mm or 3 inches to 400mm or 16 inches diameter for an estimated 1.636 tons NEQ. Now, if you're wondering what NEQ stands for, that is the net explosive quantity. And this refers to the total mass of explosive substances 
and that excludes packaging, casings, and so on. Now, beyond the magazines, there were also two metal-clad sheds on the site. The first was 15 metres by 10 metres in size, and it was used for storing mortars, racks, and tubes with wooden stakes. The second was 8 metres by 12 metres in size, and it was used for storing mortars and, crucially, the preparation of fireworks pieces for upcoming displays. On the morning of the incident, it contained ground pack tubes, completed ground packs, rolls of quick match, lances, and port fires. Shed 2 was also referred to as the packing shed. In addition to the four magazines and the two sheds, there were four shipping containers also located on site. Freight container 1 was a 20-foot ISO shipping container that held between three or four cartons of Roman candles, 25 units per carton. Freight container number 2 was a 40-foot ISO shipping container that held between three to four cartons of daytime smoke. Freight container 3 was a smaller fiberglass container, but it was located inside shed number 2, or the packing shed, and it contained a mixture of confetti bombs, port fires, lances, partial rolls of quick match, fountains, and approximately 2,000 electric fuse heads. Finally, freight container 4 was another 20-foot ISO shipping container that held approximately 450 75mm and 300 100mm aerial shells for a total of 93 kilograms NEQ. Interestingly, Mr. Cardile stated following the incident that the container was empty on the morning of the incident. That may be of interest shortly. With all of that background, let's talk about the incident itself. At approximately 7.30am local time on the 6th of March 2002, Mr. Patrick Carina began working in the packing shed, initially making notes about two forthcoming fireworks displays in Perth on the coming weekend. One of the conveniences of living on site was Mr. Carina could start early. Approximately five years earlier, a caravan had been permitted to stay permanently on site in Lot 6, where Mr. Carina was permitted to live by Mr. Cardile. The caravan was located approximately 10 metres from magazine number 2 and 12 metres from magazine number 3. Pretty short commute, I suppose. After making his notes, Mr. Carina began removing the electric fuse heads from a batch of between 15 and 20, 25-shot, 30mm or 1.2-inch diameter tube ground packs. These particular ground packs were recovered from a previous display at Gloucester Park, and during that display, for reasons unknown, they failed to fire. The plan for the morning was to replace all of those packs' electric fuse heads with hand-firing mechanisms, in other words, not electric fuses. At approximately 8.30am, Mr Jim Cardile arrived on site and began assisting Mr Carina by sorting the ground packs on the ground by colour, while Mr Carina continued to remove electric fuse heads from the remaining packs. Their procedure was as follows. Remove the aluminium foil from the top of the ground pack, tear or remove the masking tape that secured the wires of the fuse head to the fuse, carefully remove the fuse head from the pack, Place the diffused ground pack on the ground a few steps behind where Mr. Carina's workbench was located. Mr. Cardile would then collect the ground pack and place it on a low wooden workbench ready for the alternative fuse to be added. Within 15 minutes of Mr. Cardile's arrival, they had completed this manoeuvre on two ground packs successfully. At approximately 8.45am, as Mr. Cardile placed the third ground pack on the wooden bench, a burning star ignited launched and ricocheted off the roof of the shed. As mentioned previously, the design of ground packs is such that adjacent tubes will trigger if one fires, and hence very shortly two, 
then four, then eight, then all of the remaining burning stars ignited and launched at high velocity into the enclosed space. Both Mr. Cardile and Mr. Carina ran out of the packing shed when they quickly realised the situation was out of control. Burning stars landed in the assortment of other fireworks being stored in the packing shed, subsequently igniting them as well, until a large fire was well underway. In only a few minutes, a thick grey smoke was pouring out of the packing shed entrance door as the fire escalated and the heat was radiating now to nearby equipment and structures. Nearby was the other shed, a vehicle, two box trailers and freight container number four only 16 metres or 52 feet from the open door of the packing shed. At approximately 8.50am, Mr. Cardile attempted to reach his vehicle in an attempt to save it, as it was parked between the packing shed and container 4, but he had to turn back as the heat from the fire was far too intense. At 8.52am, the heat from the packing shed fire caused freight container 4 to explode, with enough force to knock Mr. Cardile over. He was approximately 30 metres or 100 feet from the container at that time. The explosion was detected 5 kilometres or 3 miles away at the Perth Observatory's seismograph in Bickley, which is east of Carmel. Shrapnel from the explosion of the container was found as far as 400 metres or 437 yards away from the epicentre of the explosion. By now, the packing shed was fully ablaze. The vehicle and both trailers were on fire. Shed 1 and freight container 4 were also on fire. Well, what was left of it was on fire. Shrapnel had also pierced the outer walls of magazines M2 and M3, which had now begun fires inside both of those magazines. At 8.56am, magazine 2 exploded with a similar force to the first explosion, blowing off the front and rear doors and cracking the weld seams in multiple locations. The rear door landed some 50 metres or 164 feet away. At 9.06am, Magazine 3 then exploded, with a force 21 times greater than the first explosion, throwing debris up to 510 metres or 560 yards away from the epicentre. A fireball about 100 metres or 330 feet in diameter sent a mushroom-like cloud several hundreds of metres into the sky that was easily visible from Perth, with reports the explosion was heard in Redlands and Sabaiko suburbs some 30 kilometres or 19 miles away. The force of the explosion tipped Magazine 1 onto its side, and whilst shrapnel from the third blast had penetrated it, no explosion occurred in Magazine Number 1, although it would ultimately burn itself out. Multiple bushfires, or grass fires, were started by the hot shrapnel in the surrounding bushland. Mr. Karina's caravan was destroyed by the third explosion and its remnants burned in the subsequent fire. Brown smoke from the fires covered the mid-morning sun across a large part of the city. As roads were closed by the police to stop onlookers from congesting roads emergency services were using to fight the fires. Three ambulances were dispatched initially, but once it was determined that not many people were hurt, two of them were relieved. Once the fires had been extinguished, only Magazine 4 remained intact with Magazine 1 burned out on its side and all other structures effectively destroyed. 40 hectares of bushland was burnt as a result of the explosions. Property damage within 500 metres, that's a third of a mile, from the explosions included houses and fruit packing sheds with shattered windows, cracked internal walls and serious structural damage to at least one shed. Windows were blown out in multiple buildings up to a kilometre away, including a nearby school, Window damage was found up to 4.5 kilometres or 2.8 miles away. Unbelievably, no one was killed or injured in this incident. 
This appears to be primarily from very, very good fortune and not good planning. Let's talk about the investigation. Investigators from the Western Australian offices assigned were Dr. Peter Drygala, Mr. Henry Zuadzuma, Mr. Laurie Lim, and Dr. Mark Comer. Additionally, Mr. Bob Sheridan, Chief Inspector of Explosives, and Mr. John Harradine, Principal Inspector of Explosives from the Queensland Department of Natural Resources and Mines, also assisted. Technical advice was also provided by Dr. Roy Merrifield, Senior Scientist and International Fireworks Explosion Subject Matter Expert from the Health and Safety Executive in the United Kingdom. The investigation was led by the then Department of Mineral and Petroleum Resources, which merged with the Department of Commerce in 2017 to form the current Department of Mines, Industry, Regulation and Safety. The final report was delivered on the 10th of July 2002, only four months following the incident. The official report forms the basis of the points we'll cover shortly. So what went wrong? For me, there are three key moments in this incident. Firstly, the initial fireworks ignition. Second, the rapid escalation of the fire leading to freight container number four exploding. And thirdly, the sheer scale of magazine three's explosion. So to begin, the simple question, why did that burning star ignite when the third box was placed on the wooden bench? The report stated that the cause could not be determined, suggesting it was, and I quote, indirect involvement of an electric fuse head, end quote. Now, gunpowder is not the most stable of explosive substances. There have been many cases where slight vibrations, sudden impacts and such can set it off under the right conditions. Additionally, electric fuse heads also have a similar reputation, particularly older or damaged ones. If the ground packs being worked on had not fired when they should have from a previous display, it's highly likely that there was still an issue of some kind with those fuse heads, hence why they were removing them that morning. There was an example in March 1989 in Peterborough, in England, when blasting explosives detonated as the vehicle transporting them was going over a speed bump. The cause was traced to rust from an older electric fuse head, sensitizing the explosive and making the explosive unstable. It's also true that the act of removing the fuse heads can also lead to an explosion, as can powered radio signals resonating metal in the fuse head. For both of these possibilities, under testimony, both Mr. Cardile and Mr. Karina claimed their phones were off, as per procedure, and the explosion did not occur when one of the fuse heads was being removed. However, there was also an unconfirmed interview with Mr. Karina following the incident with a local radio station, where it was claimed Mr. Karina had said the explosion occurred when he was removing one of the defective fuse heads. Our efforts to trace the source of this news report as a reference were unsuccessful. Irrespective, there is no hard evidence to prove any of these scenarios one way or another. Next, let's look at how the fire escalated. But before we talk about that, we need to quickly cover hazard divisions. Dangerous goods are divided into different classes based on the hazard that they present. Class 1, which is the relevant class in this incident, is for dangerous goods, explosive substances and articles. Within class 1, there are six subclasses numbered 1.1 to 1.6. Rather than go through all six, we'll focus on three specifically. Division 1.1, substances and articles which have a mass explosion hazard. Division 1.3, substances and articles which have a fire hazard and either a minor blast hazard or a minor projection hazard, or both. 
and finally Division 1.4, substances and articles which present no significant hazard, only a small hazard in the event of ignition or initiation during transport with any effects largely confined to the package. Prior to the events at Carmel, all fireworks were categorised such that those stored at the Carmel facility were considered to be either HD 1.3 or HD 1.4. Why this is relevant is that there are different separation requirements relative to HD 1.1 explosives. An incident in the Netherlands in May of 2000 led the United Nations Working Group to reclassify specific fireworks as being HD 1.1. Following the events that unfolded, and despite the working group's recommendations yet to be formally adopted, Australian regulators agreed that a HD 1.1 classification should be used in future for those firework types in Australia as well. To be clear, we're talking about reports, in other words, salutes. To create a loud noise, they consist of a mass explosion to generate an air pressure wave. Hence, the storage of these with other explosives increased the risks of an escalation to the explosion, as was seen at Carmel. Now let's talk about the storage of fireworks inside Shed 2. Firstly, what's the difference between preparation and storage? I'm glad you asked. Regulation 136 states, and I quote, Where fireworks are intended for a display, they may be stored for a period of 14 days before the display if they are stored in a detached building, not in general occupation, and secured against unauthorized entry. The investigators determined that there was evidence that Shed 2 was being used for long-term storage and didn't qualify with the above regulation. There is no question that this led to the rapid escalation of the fire and its spread to nearby structures. In fact, that was the investigator's recommendation number two, and I quote, Fireworks operators worldwide store all their fireworks in licensed magazines and not in preparation areas, end quote. Beyond that, the placement of freight container four between the packing shed and magazine number three was also questionable. Regulation 54, bracket six, requires that any flammable material should not be stored within eight metres of a storage magazine, and yet... Freight container 4 was only 6 metres away from magazine 3. The placement of a living structure within the blast radius of magazine 3 is highly questionable as well, and whilst no one was hurt or killed, you wouldn't have got me living in that caravan. A bit more about the facility's location then. The damage that resulted from the third and largest explosion suggests that the facility might have been located too close to other residences and schools. The investigator's recommendation number five, and I quote, For the purpose of licensed storage of fireworks of HD 1.1, separation distances to off-site residential housing shall be in accordance with the vulnerable facilities as per Table 3.2.3.2 of Australian Standard 2187.1-1998 edition, Explosives, Storage, Transport and Use Part 1, Storage, except that a minimum separation distance of 400 metres shall apply at all times. End quote. Of course, the HD 1.1 reclassification of reports, otherwise known as salutes, happened after the incident, so this is not something that can be found as a legal or compliance cause of the incident. What's interesting is that the facility at the time was considered by the government department to be compliant with the physical buffer requirements of the standard as it stood at the time. Having said that, there were some questions raised regarding the interpretation of the standard by the DMPR and the report itself was not self-critical. Had the investigation been led by more independent people further from the incident, 
there may have been more detail in that regard. Despite the location's approval, damage to nearby buildings still occurred and shrapnel also travelled significant distances. For this reason, a minimum separation distance was recommended to be added to the standard. Let's talk about the aftermath. As a result of this incident, Australian Standard 2187.1, Explosive Storage Transport and Use Part 1 Storage, was amended to include the UN recommendations for fireworks and explosives classifications, as well as the aforementioned minimum 400 metre requirement. Repair costs to damaged structures beyond Lot 6 were fortunately relatively minimal. The property damages and loss of fireworks product in this incident were ultimately overcome by the company, and in the longer term, Cardile Fireworks continues to operate today. They are generally considered to be one of the best firework display companies in Western Australia. The Lot 6 Turner Road facility had its remaining intact magazine, number 4, relocated to a different site. Today, following a mass cleanup between 2002 and 2003, the area has been replanted for farming purposes, with no real visual remnants of the explosion and fire now 20 years ago. So what do we conclude from all of this? Whether you believe that the placing of the ground pack that triggered this incident could have been done more gently or not, for the extremely unlikely case that pyrotechnicians are listening to this episode, clearly take great care when handling explosives, follow the procedures, and don't stockpile too much in the packing area. But what are the broader lessons? Not everyone works in the explosives business, but as an engineer, I've worked in facilities that have hazardous materials that can explode. I suppose for me, the key learning here beyond being careful when handling explosives, who would have guessed that one, is to keep explosives away from other structures. Whenever there is a possibility of ignition, we can estimate the amount of combustible material and determine a safe blast radius to ensure people and equipment are kept outside of that at a safe distance. When you arrive at a site, when parking your vehicle, a few metres from the door of the packing shed is quite clearly too close. Placing a freight container with fireworks in it between the packing shed and the storage magazines, also way too close. Placing a caravan where someone sleeps every night, 10 metres from a magazine, also way, way too close. Magazine number four was effectively untouched because it was bunded by an earth wall and was also further away from all the other structures. I feel like the overarching lesson is to not become complacent. The facility existed for over a decade without any incidents before the caravan was situated on the site. Freight Container 4 was positioned outside of Packing Shed 6 only six months prior to the incident, and it was a key escalator of this incident. It's much quicker to walk between the magazines, containers and sheds. Nothing's ever gone wrong before. No big deal, right? Let's just put the container here. It'll be much more convenient, right? Anyway... We have to plan for the worst-case outcome, position things to cater for that outcome, so that if something does go wrong, the damage will be limited and no one will get hurt. And in this incident, it's truly a miracle that no one was. If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, Kevin Kosh, Leslie, Shane O'Neill, Jared, Joel Maher, Katerina Will, Dave Jones, and Kellen Fredelius Fujimoto. And an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal, and our gold producer, known only as R. 
Causality is heavily researched, and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes, and you can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on selected episodes, and you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message if you like. There's details on how, along with the Boostergram leaderboard, all on our website. Don't forget, we're celebrating the upcoming 50th episode of Causality, and we'll be making an official Causality shirt available for a limited time, with special offers for show supporters. Visit engineer.network slash celebrate for details in coming weeks. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chigi at engineer.space or the network at engnet, that's E-N-G-N-E-T, at engineered.space. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thank you so much for listening.